Okay, part two of this series that we've entitled Carols, we're taking this time of year to look at some of the sermons that we sing at Christmas. Pastor Faith kicked us off uh, last week with probably the most famous uh, Christmas carol, Joy to the World. And um, did you notice she did not sing her carol during her message? So I will not be singing this carol during mine. Yeah, and all the people said, amen. That's right. That's right. It's a good day. <clears throat> it says, make a joyful noise, not a beautiful noise to the Lord, right? Um, so, Joy to the world, that's probably the most famous of, of the Christmas carols. Today, it's, it's not as famous, but we, we know a lot about joy to the world. We don't know a whole lot about Go Tell It on the Mountain. Like we know it was probably written by a slave. It's a slave song from the South, um, written somewhere in between 1840 and 1860, um, just before uh, the Civil War. Um, and and let's, just, let's just look at the, the verses of the song. While shepherds kept their watching over silent flocks by night, behold, throughout the heavens there shone a holy light. The shepherds feared and trembled when low above the earth rang out the angel chorus that hailed our Savior's birth. Down in a lonely manger, the humble Christ was born, and God sent us salvation that blessed Christmas morn. Born. You always got to do that part. It goes up right there, right? And then the verse that um, you might not know as well is the fifth one. The fifth stanza, he made me a watchman upon the city wall. And if I am a Christian, I am the least of all. Go, tell it on the mountain. Over the hills and everywhere, go, tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born. All kinds of imagery in this song. Um, and, and it finds its root in two passages of scripture. One that's pretty obvious, Luke 2, um, where we hear or we read about the story of the angels and the shepherds. The second one is probably not as obvious, uh, but it's Isaiah 52. If you have a Bible or a mobile device, go ahead and find that. That's where we're going to hang out this morning, Isaiah 52. That's where the prophet talks about a day. He's looking forward to the day when the good news of the Messiah will be announced throughout the whole earth. So, so he's 750 years before Christ. He's looking forward to, and this is what he writes, how beautiful on the what? The mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings or who bring messages of happiness, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. We'll come back to the importance of the, the mountain imagery here in a minute. Um, but this is Isaiah looking forward to Jesus. There's actually a passage in the New Testament where Paul looks back towards Jesus. In Romans 10, Paul is, is talking about the urgency of the gospel, this idea that Jesus has come, he has died for sin, he's made a way for people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to be made right with God. And you have to accept that, you have to receive that in order to be saved. And he concludes that explanation like this, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they've not heard? How can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, he quotes directly from Isaiah 52, 7, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. 
So this song from the, the 1800s connects Isaiah's prophecy to the Christmas story and the Great Commission. He, he connects Isaiah's prophecy looking forward to Jesus' coming. He, he connects Jesus' coming and then he connects the Great Commission that Jesus gave us. There's a link between all three of those things that I want us to look at today. And we're gonna do that by seeing three things about the gospel, three things about the good news that we learn from this carol. Number one, to whom the good news comes. Number two, what the good news brings. And then number three, where the good news sends. We're gonna look at those one at a time. Number one, to whom the good news comes. The first stanza of this carol, we're told that the message first came to the shepherds. Now, it shouldn't surprise us that a slave, the slave who wrote this song was drawn to the story of the shepherds because shepherds were considered the lowest class of people in Jewish society, much like slaves would have been in their time. And I've talked about this before, but we, we romanticize nativity scenes, okay? Um, the shepherds, in, in nativity scenes are these good-looking, strapping young men with cool, you know, first-century GQ outfit, outfits, you know, that, that have sashes and bandanas that we think are cool in some kind of first-century way. And, and their, their, their faces are glowing and clean-shaven, and they're reverent, they're humbly pondering the mysteries of the Christ child, you know? That is not grounded in reality at all. Okay, shepherds were basically homeless people. They were, they were dirty, smelly people because they worked outside with animals for weeks at a time. Um, they were the kind of people you could smell before you could see, right? These, the, the shepherding, it's the, it's the least desirable job in Israel because it's the ultimate unskilled labor. And the way that we know that is because you know the phrase shepherd boy. You know that phrase. And you know that phrase from scripture because shepherding was so easy, a middle schooler could do it. So, so when a grow, or young man grows up and becomes a man, if he's a shepherd, it meant a total life fail. Something had happened. If, if, if you were asked, what does your son do? No one wanted to answer, he's a shepherd. Because the next question is, what happened? What took place in his life? To where he, he, he was doing this. It's the modern equivalent of saying, my son plays video games all day in the basement. <laughs> <laughs> and then on top of that, they're, they're, they're not, they, they weren't considered respectable citizens. Because they had to work seven days a week, which means they couldn't observe the Sabbath, couldn't worship at temple. Rabbinic history tells us that um, shepherds could not give testimony in a court of law. If 10 shepherds saw you commit a crime and all 10 of them said the same thing in court, it wasn't admissible. This is how lowly shepherds were seen in first century Israel. So it's a bit of an understatement but they weren't the typical candidates to receive an announcement about the birth of the King of Kings. This is not where you go. This is not to whom you go to tell this. It's, it's normal for our presidential candidates today to announce that they're running for president um, in front of a Fortune 500 company 
or at some prestigious landmark. They, they want to be associated with something that's successful and respected. That makes sense. It would not make sense for a presidential candidate to go to Skid Row in downtown LA to announce their presidency because they don't want to be associated with that. This, this idea that the angels announce the inauguration of God with us to people despised in society doesn't make sense. So why'd they do it? Why do they go to the shepherds first? The answer is pretty simple. It's because the announcement of the gospel demonstrates the nature of the gospel itself. In going to the shepherds first, God showed us that everybody considered to be at the bottom of the social totem pole, considered too broken, considered too poor or too insignificant, were welcome in his kingdom. That is good news. That is good news. In fact, you just, you just watch Jesus' public ministry, right? When he goes public with his ministry, he seems to prefer the poor and the broken over those who weren't. Why, why is that? And I don't, I don't know this for a fact, but I think it might be because they're in a better position to receive the good news because they know they need it. People in need of good news receive good news a whole lot better. Because see, the root, the root of all sin is pride. This idea that I don't need God, that, that we're sufficient without him. And when you're rich and respectable in some way of, of, of living, we're often deceived into thinking we don't need God. I mean, if, if, if you have all kinds of money that brings safety and security, you don't really think about needing safety and security from God. If, if you're rich in talent or good looks, you feel like everybody, you have everybody else's approval, so why do I need God's? If everybody else thinks I'm awesome, I don't really care if God thinks I'm awesome. Or if you're, you're, you're rich in moral goodness, you're respected or looked up to, you assume that if God is gonna accept anyone, surely he'll accept me. I mean, if, he, if he's grading on a curve, whew, I'm certainly making it, right? But that sense of pride, that sense of, of self-sufficiency or maybe even self-respectability, it's an illusion. It's an illusion. And, 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 and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what I mean. One short Unexpected conversation with a doctor after a routine checkup can shatter any sense of self-sufficiency. And some of you ex have experienced this. All your plans, all your prospects for the future go away in an instant that you talk to that oncologist. A, a phone call in the middle of the night telling you that an accident has happened and it destroys everything you cherish most. One unexpected summons into your boss's office on a Friday afternoon and your financial security goes down the drain. This, this idea that we're self-sufficient, it's an illusion. And, and, and beyond that, if we think of ourselves as a basically decent person, it's usually because we're comparing ourselves to the wrong standard. 
And anytime I catch myself feeling good about my moral goodness, which happens more than I'd like to admit publicly with a microphone on camera, (laughs) it's because I've started comparing myself to somebody else. And then I look into the mirror of God's word and I see what Jesus said about those who enter the kingdom. And I'm challenged by that. Because he said, he said, if I want to enter the kingdom, I have to be so surrendered to him that if he told me to sell everything and give it to the poor, I would, without a second thought. He, he said my heart needed to be so full of love that if someone stole my jacket, my first impulse should be to give them my shirt too. That is the kind of person, that's the kind of heart that he lets into his kingdom because that's the kind of heart that God has. That, that's, that's challenging. Jesus, Jesus told a story in Luke 18. I think it's Luke 18. You can double check me on that. But Luke 18, he tells a story about two men who go to the temple to pray, right? And one is seen as righteous and the other is a tax collector. He just stands in the back of the room like a shepherd stands in the back of the room and he just says, God, forgive me, I'm a sinner. And Jesus says, one of those men went home justified that day and it's not the one you think. The question is never how good do I have to be to earn God's favor? That's a non-starter. The right question is, do I realize I'm so sinful I never can? You're so sinful. I'm so sinful, we'll never earn God's favor. God's favor has to be received as a gift. It's the only way it can be received. And shepherds and slaves understand that much quicker than so-called righteous people. Shepherds and slaves are in a better position to understand their need for a savior because when you're on your back, you're looking in the right direction. Shepherds and slaves often find themselves in desperate need of saving, of rescue. So you don't have to be a shepherd or a slave to be saved, but you do have to have the heart of one. You, you, you have to recognize your need for a savior before you receive him. I, I heard this um, a couple weeks ago. All you need in Christianity is need. All you need in Christianity is need. You need to understand your need for Jesus. If you don't have a need for Jesus, you don't have Jesus. Do you have a need for Jesus? Do you understand your need for Jesus? That's to whom the good news comes. Those who understand their need. Secondly, what the good news brings What the good news brings, like many um, slave spirituals, this song focuses on God's promise to end suffering because we don't don't like thinking about this. We don't like looking at this. We kind of want to brush it under the rug because it's a very, very ugly stain on the history of our country. But slavery, slaves lived a terrible life, full of, of injustice and pain, And at the same time, many of them recognized that the birth of Christ was was an announcement about bringing a world in which sin and suffering and slave masters would no longer reign over them. 
Pastor Faith looked at um, the, the, the most famous Christmas carol written by a man in the midst of intense suffering. Just so fascinating to me that he wrote about joy. Joy to the world. It's a declaration that sin and suffering and injustice, it does not reign. The Savior reigns. It does not get the last word. Joy to the world or joy to the earth. The Savior reigns. And then this line, he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. What's the curse? Go back to Genesis. (laughs) He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Think about all of the places that the writer of this carol would have faced the curse. He, he would have experienced the curse every single day of his life as he, as he thought about being owned by another image bearer. He was owned by another human being. He, 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 the curse was felt in the injustice and the abuse he endured every day of his life. You think your job is hard? His job was hard. 24-7, 365, thankless toil. More than likely, the curse was founded being separated from their family. You've heard, you've read stories, you've watched movies of spouses being separated from each other or, or, or children, their children being ripped away from their parents when they're old enough to work themselves. Everywhere he went, every single day of his life, he faced the curse and he writes about good news coming into this world. It's a declaration that all of that's temporary. That one day, Jesus will reverse and establish a new world. I don't, in my opinion, we don't talk about this aspect of the gospel enough. We talk about the gospel as something that it's salvation and God's forgiveness and, and he wipes away our sins. And that is absolutely true. But it's also a healing and a reversal of the curse. That's also a part of the gospel. Jesus didn't just die to take away our sin. He was resurrected to reverse the pain of our sin. So we think about heaven where the reversal of the curse is made final and forever. Too many people envision heaven as this spiritual bodiless existence where we float around on clouds playing harps in one forever church service, right? That's not heaven. In fact, there was a survey done just just recently have found that two-thirds of American evangelical Christians believe that heaven, we don't have a body in heaven. If you come to this church, you will not think that (laughs) because that is not true. The, the, The Bible talks about heaven as a new heaven and a new earth. So if I told you I got a new car and we walked outside and I was gonna show you my new car, would you expect to see an elephant? Would you expect to see a bike? No, you would expect to see a newer version of the car that I had before. The new heaven and the new earth is like the old heaven and the old earth, just newer and better in every way. Whatever here is cursed, there it's healed. Hey, what does glorified prime rib taste like? Nobody said glory to that, right? Like if we're eating the cursed version, what does glorified prime rib taste like? And don't give me this, we won't eat meat in heaven. (laughs) 
whatever. <laughs> Jesus ate fish after the resurrection. So put that on your grill and cook it, right? <laughs> right? What, is, what does the heavenly Grand Canyon look like? What does heavenly Hawaii look like? If we're, if, this is the cursed one? You serious? Hey, those of us who are golfers, we think Augusta National Golf Club is a little slice of heaven here on earth. It's the cursed one, fellas and ladies. The curse has touched everything. Where has it touched you? Some of you have lost loved ones. Some of you have been faced with a disease or a cancer diagnosis or, or your body's falling apart. Some of you have, have, have struggled with mental health. Some of you have broken family relationships. Some of us struggle with work or occupation issues. Some of you face addictions that you would love to leave behind. Part of the good news of Jesus' coming is that one day all of that curse will be reversed. And that's good news for shepherds. <laughs> that's good news for slaves. That's good news for those who walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It's good news for people who have suffered. It's good news for people who face pain every single day. It's good news for you. And it's good news for me. That's what the good news brings. And then the last part, what the, where the good news sins. Where the good news sins. The writer of the carol says, go, go tell it everywhere. If the good news means there's no one too lowly for God to pursue, no one too insignificant for God to overlook, no one so guilty that God will forsake, no one so broken that God cannot heal, no one so lost that God cannot find. If Jesus really is able to save to the uttermost, we've got to go tell that everywhere. We got to go share. There's, there's nowhere that the good news can't penetrate. There's no one that the good news can't heal. Why would we not go and tell that everywhere? So, so mountain imagery, okay? Go tell it on the mountain. Let's talk about that. In those days, in Isaiah's day, uh, most Middle Eastern cities were built between mountain ranges. And in a day before cell phones or modern communication, when they're waiting for good news, maybe there's a battle happening far away that was threatening their kingdom, while waiting for the good news, what they're going to do is they're going to look to the hills they're going to they're gonna look to the mountains for the messenger coming with the right color flag saying, we won. Saying that the battle is won. The victory is ours. And the first one who sees that messenger is the watchman on the wall. That's where the, the, the fifth verse, he made me a watchman upon the city wall. So that's how that happened in that day. What about our day? Who are the watchmen today? The watchmen today are you and I, those of us who know the battle's been won. 
Those of us who know that victory is ours, we've been, we've been stationed on the city wall to watch, to pay attention. And we have seen victory is ours. So Isaiah is imagining these groups of people scattered all over the world, different cities, different nations, languages, classes of people just waiting because they're overwhelmed. They're oppressed by the curse. They're without hope. And, and he, here comes this messenger to announce the battle's over. Our kingdom's safe. We've been rescued. And I, again, Isaiah's pointing forward to that day. We look back on that day, but we also look forward to the second advent. When our king will come, he's not coming as a baby next time. Okay? He's, he's coming as a victorious warrior. I did a... Um, uh, 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 a prison ministry one time, and you're talking to you're talking to guys that are hardened, right? And then, and we we're talking about Revelation. I don't know why we were talking about Revelation, but we were talking about Revelation. And you get to the part where where Jesus is on the horse and he's wearing this robe, and one of the guys he says he says, "How confident do you have to be to show up for war in a bathrobe?" <laughs> that is a unique perspective. <laughs> right? But that's how Jesus is coming back, not in a bathrobe. But that's the kind of confidence our king has because the battle has been won. Reminds me of a, of a scene from the second book of the Lord of the Rings. Nerd alert, okay? <laughs> Two towers, uh, uh, Aragorn and Theoden and Legolas, the good guys, and their small army, they're trapped, by this huge army of orcs. And, and when it all seems lost, Aragorn remembers the, the words of Gandalf, the wise wizard. On the fifth day, look to the east, the mountain for our coming. And he looks to the east and he sees as the sun rises, he sees that, that Gandalf and the armies of the Rohirrim come over the crest and they, they, they save, they bring rescue and salvation. That's the scene Isaiah pictures. That there's no group anywhere, no matter how broken or lost, surrounded by mountains of oppression for whom Jesus has not won the victory. So we go. We tell it on the mountains over whatever hills and everywhere to all groups of people in all places. The battle's been won. Multiple people throughout history have reminded us of this. Amy Carmichael was a missionary to India about 100 years ago. She, um, she started an orphanage in India and served it for 55 years straight. Never took a break. Here's what she said. Does it not stir up our hearts to go forth and help them? Does it not make us long to leave our luxury, our exceeding abundant light, and go to them that sit in darkness? Amy Carmichael's mountain was India. It was orphans in India. Hudson Taylor, one of the pioneers that took the gospel to China, he, it said that he could barely stand to go to church services when he went back to England. And it's not that he, he, he didn't like the singing and, and, and the crowds, that wasn't it. He just said it, it, he couldn't get past the sound of hundreds of people 
singing and hearing and bathing in the truth of the gospel when he knew there were millions of Chinese who never heard of Jesus. He had to stand outside during the music portion before he came in and spoke. The the mountain for Hudson Taylor was China and he was willing to scale it just so they could hear the good news. And, and, And please hear me. One of, the, one of the things that I consistently hear is, well, I'm not called to that. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. We don't have to wait for some special Damascus Road experience to engage. Too many Christians excuse themselves from this because, well, I'm not called. Let me meddle a little bit here. I want you to hear the words from William Booth founder of the Salvation Army, who, who pushed on this in his day. He said, not called, did you say? Refuse to hear the call you should say. Just put your ear down to the Bible and hear him bid you go and pull sinners out of the fire of sin. Put your ear down to the burdened, agonized heart of humanity and listen to its pitiful wail for help. Go stand by the gates of hell and hear the damned entreat you to go back to their father's house and warn their brothers and sisters not to come there. And then look Jesus in the face, whose mercy you have professed to obey, and tell him whether you will join heart and soul and body and circumstances in the march to proclaim his mercy to the world. It's not a question of calling. It's a question of obedience. When you decided to follow Jesus, the call to go tell it on the mountain was given to you in that moment. The question is not if. The question is where and how. It's not if. It's where and how. The Great Commission was not something Jesus gave to a bunch of seminary-trained individuals in Matthew 28. He gave them to ordinary, unschooled fishermen. They turned the world upside down. It's a mandate for every follower of Jesus. Go tell it on the mountain. This is, it's not some sentimental song to sing at Christmas. It's actually our marching orders. It's it's our mandate. It's what we've been commissioned to do. So the question, very simple question I have for you today is this, who are you telling? Who are you telling? Which, Which mountain has he called you to scale? Because we're not all called to India. We're not all called to China. We're not all called to work with orphans or the homeless. We're not all called to pastor. I get that. But every single one of us that claim the name of Jesus are called to go and tell. Every single one of us will one day stand before Jesus and give an account for what we did with his call on our life. Who are you telling? Which mountain has he sent you to scale. For some of us, the first step is the neighbor across the street. That's, that's the first mountain. The, the co-worker down the hall. The people that you go bowling with. The, the, the people that God has placed you around. For, for some of you, this might mean a change of occupation. I talked to somebody this week where that was true. Some of you, it may mean a change of address. For some of you, It might mean going to an unreached people group. For some of you, it's the orphan, the homeless, the prisoner, the high school dropout. But if you're you're a follower of Jesus, you're called and I want you to be able to stand before him 
with a clean conscience one day and answer for your calling. And, and the fuel for that is not guilt. <laughs> Guilt's a great short-term motivator. It's a terrible long-term motivator. The fuel for that is to remember, spiritually speaking, you and I are the shepherds. We are so undeserving of this good news. And we can't earn it. We can only receive it. Spiritually speaking, we are the slave and Jesus emancipated us. You don't have to be a shepherd or a slave to be saved, but you have to have a heart of one. You have to understand your need for Jesus. And then once you receive that good news, we're sent. Now that you know, you gotta go. Now that you know, you gotta go. Go tell everybody. Everybody that'll listen. And even those that might not. <laughs> go tell it over the hills and everywhere that Jesus Christ is born. It's our calling. It's our commission. It's our mandate. Who? Who are you telling? Who are you telling? Let's pray. Father, my simple prayer today is that you would, you would renew, remind, refresh this church's commission and vision to see your gospel transform our city, to transform us, to transform our neighbors, our children, this nation, and nations around the world. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Have a great week, you're dismissed. <laughs>